0: my kid only eats macaroni her face is always looking at a screen i rarely read her books before bed and i often forget to brush her teeth i'm a good mom you're listening to cult of perfect perfect this is a podcast about the intersection of motherhood public performance and bodies I'm Virginia Soul Smith, I write the newsletter Burnt Toast, I host the Burnt Toast podcast, and I'm the author of Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture.
1: I'm Sarah Peterson, I write the newsletter In Pursuit of Clean Countertops, and I'm the author of Momfluenced. Virginia, what do you think of when you hear the word minimalism?
0: I think my main answer is beige. Okay. I think beige, neutral cream tones is a big part of my answer. I also think of like something I'm not doing well at. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I have felt a lot of pressure to be more minimalistic in my life and I just am not going to be. I think of it as the Montessori toy shelves where your kids have like one toy per cubby and you rotate them and that's mm-hmm. all they play with of like very spare no clutter ever right. anywhere. An absence of stuff, for sure. Yeah, profound absence of stuff. And, like, in wardrobes, I think about it a lot there, too. And I think about it as, like, you have just, like, the perfect jeans and the perfect yes. white T-shirt, which, like, you aren't putting spaghetti sauce on. I'm wearing a white shirt right now. I just ate lunch. I You can't see me. Right. You know, but it is not great. Right, right, right. right. Uh, <laughs> like, so it's, like, both having very few possessions and being able to— maintain them impeccably. Mm, uh-huh. I'm struck by, it's also something you can be good at. Like, it's an aesthetic you can excel at. They're grading you and not on a curve. Like, you have to meet a lot of benchmarks to achieve minimalism, like capital M in minimalism.
1: Uh-huh, uh-huh. The one cashmere sweater you'll have for the rest of your life, the only pair of black pants you'll ever need, like, there is right. a real fetishization of, like, one's ability to ideally curate one's
0: existence, I mm-hmm. think, when it comes to minimalism. And yet also be on trend, right? Yes. Like, uh-huh. The one black pair of pants, they're not going to be whatever cut of black pants we were wearing five years ago. They're somehow going to like morph with you. Like, is it a straight leg? Is it a bootleg? And I know you've written
1: about this before when it comes to capsule wardrobes, but it also Mm -hmm. obviously plays into this idea that, you know, your body or your home's needs or whatever it is you're aestheticizing never changes.
0: I can't achieve a minimalist wardrobe because I cannot reliably expect to wear the same clothing size from one season to the next. And most women, most people with bodies can't really. Like things just don't fit the same way that they did six months ago in any direction. You know, it's just things don't fit the same way. Like bodies are changing all the time. Totally. The other piece of it that we didn't touch on is that minimalism is very linked to like a kind of moral social responsibility. Mm -hmm. You're cutting down on your consumption because you care about the planet, because you care about not buying things from factories with bad working conditions. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of guilt. There's both like this aesthetic failing and this moral failing when you're not achieving it. Totally.
1: So you said you feel like it's something you don't do well, but Do you see yourself adopting minimalist either aesthetics or, I guess, ideologies in any aspects of your life?
0: I think I'm actually, like, on a minimalism divestment journey Mm -hmm. at the moment, which I'm excited about. Mm -hmm. But I think for sure I've been very seduced by it off and on over the years. Like, for sure, experiments with capsule wardrobes. I think also motherhood. I think I was one of the sort of bougie new moms who was like, we're not going to have a lot of plastic. We don't need a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, it's 2 a.m. and your baby won't stop crying. And you're <laughs> like, what can I Amazon Prime here to fix this right away? I know, I know. I know. <laughs> like, with my first daughter, we didn't buy a bassinet. We were like, she'll just sleep in the crib. Right. And then, like, the first night we got home from the hospital, it was clear that she was not <laughs> willing to sleep in the crib right away. And we— Amazon primed like a hundred and fifty dollar like crappy plastic bassinet that she also would not sleep in. So I'm not saying buying the thing solves the thing because it definitely very often doesn't. But then there was this triple, like, I failed because I bought the thing that didn't work and I shouldn't have been trying to buy the things that I'm trying not to buy anything, you know? Yes. But I also think, like, for a long time, I tried really hard to decorate my house pretty minimally, like, a lot of neutrals, Uh like, it was, like, cream and navy and not a lot of pops of color. And the more I've started to embrace, like, pops of color in, like, clothing I wear, the more color I'm bringing into our house, and especially, like— these days, you know, my house is, like, totally under my control decor-wise, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, It's me and my two daughters, and we are, you know, people who like color and like, you know, a little bit of whimsy. And, yeah, I've been like, why was I holding back? Why was every throw pillow cream? Also, we have children. That was a bad idea. <laughs> right, right, right. I think I've been, like, holding back on joy a little bit in the quest for this minimalist aesthetic at times.
1: This huh? I think I'm entranced by the idea that minimalism will allow space for more, like, living or more joy in mm-hmm. sort of like a, a flip-flop of that idea. Like, the whole idea of clean countertops. Like, there's yes. something so tantalizing about a completely bare space, particularly yes, in a house populated by children. Because it's work
0: you don't have to do. Yeah, yeah. either means you did the work of yes. making the countertops clean. Yep. Or you're not looking at your countertops thinking, well, I have to clean up all that shit. Right. Like evidence of a to-do list or whatever.
1: I think minimalism also gets tricky in, you know, the desire to have the right beautiful thing in mm-hmm. a space. Basically, when there's like fewer things in a space, I think the pressure rises to make sure those things are, you know, the very best things that things oh, absolutely. can be.
0: This is how we go down the internet rabbit holes of, like, the perfect wool sweater. Right. It doesn't actually save you labor. You're like, yes, you're buying less, but you're putting the same amount of time you would put into buying six things, you're putting into buying one thing uh-huh. and still feeling anxious and stressed about whether it's the perfect thing.
1: Do you remember the phenomenon that was kinfolk by any chance? I don't exactly— Basically, Kinfolk was this magazine started by two Mormons, which,
0: you know, I just,
1: which is always an interesting little tidbit. Didn't see
0: that coming for some reason. I, I don't know. feel like Mormons are the anti-minimalists. You have a million children. You're trying to cure all this wealth. Right, right, right. That's interesting. And they since, you know, got divorced. But that's neither here nor there.
1: It was this magazine that was very much like, I don't know, like jam jars being used to hold flowers in.
0: Oh, man, I did that. So much oh, in
1: the same. early 2000s. I mean, I still do. I still do. So many do. mason
0: jars. Yes, yes, yeah.
1: yes. Mason yeah. jars. It was like gingham tablecloths. hmm
0: mm-hmm.
1: Very much like Simplicity is King. It really became huge early to mid-aughts. And I think you can see its influence still in home goods lines at Target. So there's an article written by Lisa Abend in Vanity Fair, sort of taking stock of kinfolk's influence on the culture. Mm-hmm. And I would like you to read a little passage.
0: All right. Kinfolk is famously about intentionality, about a kind of wholesome, slow living that exults in deliberately curated moments, carefully selected objects, And, as its twee tagline once read, small gatherings. Like all lifestyle magazines, it traffics in aspiration. And if, in the past eight years or so, you have found yourself craving a precisely sliced piece of avocado toast, or a laundry line from which to cunningly hang your linen bed sheets in the (coughs) sun-dappled afternoon, you probably have kinfolk to thank for it. But the seductions featured on its pages have always been aimed as much at the soul as the body. Through intention, Kinfolk's austerely beautiful pages, Whisper, lies not just a pretty room or a lovely outfit, but a truer expression of the self, something more meaningful, more, as the marketers now put it, authentic. Mm. Have me on the avocado
1: toast. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really stuck on the linen bedsheets in the Sundapples afternoon.
0: Yeah, no, I never fell for that shit. I'm sorry. That's not—that just sounds hard. That sounds exhausting. Who's carrying them in and out? How are you planning your life around the weather for drying clothes? Like, dryers are a gift to humanity. (laughs) It's so true. I understand the romance of that, but it just sounds like a lot more domestic labor.
1: I will say what really strikes me about this passage is the last line, Mm. a truer expression of the self, something more meaningful, which sort of harkens back to what I was saying about like this idea if we rid our environments and our bodies of excess that there will be more room for like truer forms of living, if that makes right. sense. I think it's a fallacy, but I do think that is what
0: compelled me towards minimalism in the past. And yet again, it's like... You have to buy the linen bedsheets to do it, right? Like, there's still this implied consumption in this version of minimalism. There's such a disconnect there. I mean, the lifestyle magazines are not showing you that the stylist had to stand there at the laundry line, like, perfectly hanging the linen bedsheets, like, steaming them out so that they would hang just so in the sun-dappled light. And also, why... Should
1: clutter or stuff rob us of human connection? Like, I yeah. think it's a really flawed equation. It's strange to me that I just sort of accepted that without really interrogating it. Because it doesn't make logical
0: sense. We were just discussing off mic about how, like, often parenting children, you feel like it's either, like, the highest highs or the lowest lows. Totally. Not a lot in between. But when you're getting to the highest highs part— Often things are messy, right? Like they're building a fort or doing something with Paw Patrol characters or whatever. And you're like embracing it and enjoying it with them. And that's like the connection Mm -hmm. is that there's some mess. Totally. So as I've been like rethinking my house a little bit, because again, now that I'm the only adult here, it's this exciting opportunity to, you know, redo some things, which is very freeing. But I did realize one of the mistakes I made really early on in that process was I was redoing one corner of our downstairs and I moved the girls' art table upstairs Mm -hmm. to one of the bedrooms. I was like, then you won't have to worry about cleaning it up because you can just leave it messy because it's in that room. We can close the door. I mean, fast forward like six weeks and I was like, oh, they don't make art anymore. Totally, totally. (laughs) They never think to go upstairs and do it. They're downstairs with me. We're together. We want to be together. We do still keep like the bigger, messier art supplies up there. Mm -hmm. But I ended up getting a little table for the corner of the dining room. Where we can have like markers and tape. It absolutely does not look as beautifully styled as the dining room looked before I brought back the art table. But it's obviously better for my children yep. to be able to live <laughs> in all rooms right. of their home and not be like, if I wish to make art, I should go <laughs> tuck myself away. You know, <laughs> to it's my just studio. Like, my six-year-old got really into calling it. That's our art studio upstairs, but we were never using it. This whole conversation has been really dominated by
1: the idea of choice. Like, are you buying into minimalist aesthetics or ideals? If you are, why? How has it impacted you? And so I kind of want to take that idea of choice and think more about that. And I've got a snippet from an essay written by Stephanie Land, who's the author of Made and Class. And I thought it was just an interesting perspective that, you know, we haven't touched on yet.
0: Okay, so this is from a piece Stephanie wrote for the New York Times. She writes, I had to downsize severely several years ago when my daughter and I moved into a 400-square-foot studio. I had no usable wall space, and although my boss gave me temporary storage space in her garage over the summer, I had to sort through and get rid of carloads of clothes, my childhood toys, school papers, books, movies, and artwork. I couldn't afford to store all of these items, which had value to me only as a record of my history, including mementos from my parents. My stuff wasn't just stuff, but a reminder that I had a foundation of support of people who had loved me growing up. A painting I'd done as a child that my mom had carefully framed and hung in our house. A set of antique Raggedy Ann and Andy dolls my ferret once chewed an eye out of when I was 15. Artwork my mom had collected over the decade we lived in Alaska. Things I grew up with that brought me back to a time of living a carefree life. That's heartbreaking. Yeah. It's a
1: reframing of quote unquote stuff. I think we are probably in a similar bubble, you know, a similar class race bubble that thinks of stuff with this sort of disdain. Like, you know, we should be better than our stuff and our stuff Mm -hmm. should not control us But also, like, we have the privilege to, you know, rid our lives of stuff we don't want or need. We have the privilege to think about, like, preference in terms of what we're surrounded with.
0: Oh, 100%.
1: I think this perspective is missing in a lot of conversations about minimalism.
0: Minimalism is almost rich people cosplaying poverty in a way. There was some book I had... It was like a design inspiration, beautiful coffee table type of home decor book that I got given years ago when I had bought my first house and was like very on the linen burlap mason jar aesthetic. (laughs) Yes, yes. And I think my mom or someone picked it up and was like, this is clearly what you're trying to do. So here's a lovely book. Yep. And I remember reading through it and on every other page, they kept referring to things as humble. Like this humble bread basket, this humble apron. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is so gross.
1: Yeah. It's so
0: gross. It's so gross to think of, like, because something looks sort of rustic, that it's, like, humble and hardworking and earnest salt of the earth. And morally superior. Yes, when actually, like, Stephanie is writing about a time in her life when she couldn't afford, like, groceries and school tuition and rent. (laughs) Probably just having more cash would be great. Right, 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 right. There's no morality in that. It's just, like, people need to be able to afford their lives. Do you
1: know that Marie Antoinette Do you know this story where she created... Basically, she created this whole, like... It was like cosplaying, like, poor people, essentially. She created this whole village scene, this quote-unquote humble village. And she had real people, like, populate the village. And she and her rich aristocratic, you know, friends would dress up like poor people (gasps) and, like, play people in this whole elaborate like village that must have cost you know jillions of dollars to recreate and yeah I just thought of that because I do think there's this bizarre connection between wealthy people mm-hmm. you know like rough hewn wood and yes. exposed beams like there's a lot
0: there yes wow and it I mean, it sounds horrific what she did. And I mean, of course, it was. It was Marie Antoinette. Like, she's not famously known for being a good <laughs> right. person. But also, that's not that different from what a lot of, like, Instagram influencers are doing. I mean, Is yes. that that's different from Ballerina Farm with her, like, yes. exposed plaster and lath walls? And as you're saying this, too, I'm also just thinking how our desire for minimalism, like, how much does that have to do with genuine environmental sustainability? Like, arguably, does it benefit the planet at all for Ballerina Farm not to insulate her house? Probably not. And then how much has to do with this appearance of goodness and Uh virtue and caring about these things? This is one I
1: consistently struggle with. Same. I mean, we're recording this a couple weeks before Christmas, and we have a shitload of kid shit in our house. So much. Like, an obscene amount. So it, many
0: stuffed animals. It's, they just—I think they breed. I think they breed. It, It's—it really stresses there's me out. Like when I think about more. it,
1: yes, there's always more. And I—I I have like a bag in the basement that, like, to know today they're going today, but like I'll do this thing where I collect them and I'll store them. And if nobody asks mm-hmm. about them for like you know months or whatever, I get rid of them.
0: I have three American Girl dolls in a bag like that in the basement. Like I feel like I'm hiding a body. <laughs> In my basement. (laughs) Three tiny bodies. Two bodies. Two bodies. Which ones? Nenea and then one of the Welly Wishers. Oh, okay. Because my girls are just not doll Yeah. They don't care. They stuffed animals, believe me, by the thousands. Right, right, right. But they, you know, both at various points begged for these American Girl Dolls. And as a former big American Girl doll fan, I assume this is going to be a huge part of their childhood, and they do not give a shit. And I finally was like, I'm going to donate them, but for now, I'm just secretly hiding their bodies (laughs) 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 to make sure we're really done, because it's like, American Girl dolls are expensive. Uh, Like, these were like your biggest Christmas gift on your birthday or whatever they were. Right, right. Of course, of course, of course. Clean them up and donate them. No, yes. Well, my point is that I feel all the shame
1: about... Oh, God. I mean, you know, raising my kids to not value their belongings. Raising my kids to not have the opportunity to be bored more often, to foster their mm-hmm. creative, imaginative facilities. Raising my kids not to be good environmental stewards.
0: Yeah, I'm bailing on all of that right now.
1: Yes, yes. And like... Yeah, every front. And yet, am I getting fidgets? For them? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I am. So... Yeah. Yeah, I really struggle with this one because, like, fossil fuels. Thinking about another one of the central lures for minimalism for me, and I imagine many parents, mothers specifically, is this idea of control or at least the illusion of control.
0: I'm thinking back to that, like, anxious new mom mode of we don't want a lot of stuff, don't give us a lot of stuff. Like, I think some of that was, like, trying to control. I feel like I thought if I could make motherhood this aesthetically pleasing experience. Yep. It would feel more like me in some way, like less like I was sacrificing who I thought I was pre-kids. Mm. Does that make any sense? I think it does. Like I didn't want to be suddenly this like Fisher-Price yes. covered person that wasn't who I was before. I was a lot more eco before I had kids mm-hmm. and kind of really abandoned so much of that. But, you know, I was very, like, reusable tote bags in farmer's markets back then. And I was like, we will still be that way, damn it. Yeah. And then very quickly, I was like, no, cloth diapers are not the way. Right. For me. I mean, great. Totally, totally, totally. And it was what it was. And I think that's tricky, too, because, like, I don't think there's anything
1: wrong with wanting to retain our, you know, aesthetic identities and, you know, wanting to resist the onslaught of,
0: you know, Fisher Price ugliness. I don't know. But I then think there was like this very slippery slope between like, I'm trying to hold on to some shred of who I was before I did this. Mm -hmm. And then somehow that got blurred with, I want to be the perfect Montessori mom who's raising a preschooler who's already reading and doing all these advanced things. And so that's why I'm resisting the Fisher Price crap. So like, Really, who I was before was apparently on track to become a very, like, (laughs) elitist. Yeah, yeah. No, I get it. Controlling mother. So I'm willing to say that in that sense, like, rebelling against it and being like, fine, bring on the calico critters. Like, you know, (laughs) that has felt good and liberating. Except then I have a house full of squishmallows and calico critters. (laughs) And a couple of American Girl dolls in the basement. (laughs) (laughs) The other piece of this is the way the minimalist conversation intersects with, like, diet culture. We are told as women, and I mean, all people are told this, but particularly conditioned women, like, too long for less in so many ways, to take up less space in so many ways. And, yeah, the control piece of this, I mean, there's just, like, a lot where it's like you— are trying to sort of winnow yourself into this, like, tiny, clean surfaces, like, very elitist, very, yeah, minimalist existence.
1: On the subject of control, I wanted to read this from a book called The Longing for Less, which I read as part of Monflin's research. And the author, Kyle Cheka writes... Quote, no single English language word quite captures this persistent feeling of being overwhelmed and yet alienated, which is maybe why minimalism has become so widespread. I began thinking of this universal feeling as the longing for less. It's an abstract, almost nostalgic desire, a pull towards a different, simpler world, not past nor future, neither utopian nor dystopian this more authentic world is always just beyond our current existence
0: in a place we can never quite reach i just feel like there's so much wrapped up in that longing for less and i have like empathy about the nostalgia and the like things we've lost feeling i think that's something we all struggle with especially as the world is this increasingly harrowing place yeah the alienation piece feels important but then there's also the absolute impossibility. You're yeah, you're never gonna get there. Totally. And how I
1: think it also ties very directly to consumerism because I think the impossible to achieve minimalism that we're being sold, we can only hope to achieve it by buying X, you know, by buying yes. the perfect whatever it may be. It is inextricably linked to capitalism and consumerism in that way.
0: Well, Sarah spoke with Christine Platt, author of The Afro Minimalist Guide to Living with Less, and co author of the new novel, Rebecca Not Becky, which Sarah blurbed, writing, It's impossible not to laugh out loud because we all know that mother. Christine currently serves as the executive director for Jacqueline Woodson's nonprofit residency for artists of the global majority, Baldwin for the Arts. She's also a member of the Association of Writers and Writing Programs, Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, Association of Black Women Historians, and the Association for the Study of African American Life and History. She also serves as an ambassador for Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. So I cannot wait to hear this conversation.
1: Well, Christine, I'm so psyched to have you today. I wonder if we could start by just having you introduce yourself and telling us a little bit about your work.
2: Sure. Well, first of all, I'm so happy to be here. A little bit about me and my work I am an author, I am an advocate, and I'm also known as the Afro minimalist. I started that journey a while ago. And I guess it's been almost six years now. And about two years ago, I decided to write a book about my journey and it just became (laughs) its own animal, which is really special. I, you know, still focus on, you know, really trying to encourage people to live with only what they need, use and love. The Afro-Minimalist is an extension of the advocacy work that I do in the climate change and sustainability space. So trying to get people to make those connections between our consumption and the harm that it may have on the environment, you know, aside from our finances and other stuff. Totally. <laughs> right. And clutter and all these other things. Like really getting people, you know, to understand how it intersects with all these different areas of our lives.
1: I love how like from the very beginning you're talking about the interconnectedness of all of these things. Because I think a lot of times people view minimalism as sort of like an exercise in perfection and control. Mm, And like, especially the way it shows up on social media, at least, you know, in some ways it shows up in social media. It's like all white, all beige, no
2: clutter, Mm -hmm. no mess. It's empty. I love to talk about the aesthetics of minimalism versus the practice, right? I mean, I think so many of us who live with less, we know so much more now than we did when we started, right? I mean, I started in the same kind of way, like, oh my goodness, these, you know, these little squares or whether it was on Pinterest or whatever, I'm like, God, these people look so peaceful, right? Their house is so clean. It must be the answer to all of my problems and troubles. And I remember trying to sort of mirror that barren aesthetic and my home was like mostly just you know, white on white on white. And I was like, oh my God, this is so miserable. And that's kind of how I became the Afro-Minimalist. I was like, I have to have some color. I have to have some fabric. I have to have some texture. I have to have some culture, you know. It was certainly surprising for me to sort of put myself out there as this person and say like, Hey, if there's anyone else who also is struggling with the aesthetics of minimalism, here's how you can do it with color and just have like a flood of, you know, folks following and having these conversations. And, you know, one of the things that I learned on this journey is that the aesthetics of minimalism versus the practice of minimalism are just so entirely different, right? you know, the practice of minimalism is conscious consumerism. It is having only those things that you need, use and love, or even those things that spark joy. I don't know if you saw the recent headline where Marie (laughs) (laughs) is like, yeah, I'm done with all that. Kind of going to have a messy house. I have three kids. It's too much. Right. And I applaud her for her honesty and authenticity around that. But I think that's what so many of us practitioners have been saying for so long, right? It's like for me to try and mirror the aesthetic of someone who doesn't have, you know, a kid in college or for someone else to try and mirror an aesthetic of someone that doesn't have three kids. It's just not possible, right? And we end up really putting a lot of restrictions and limitations on a practice that is supposed to be about ease. Do you have any, I don't know, ideas
1: about why minimalism as an aesthetic has dominated so many momfluencer spaces? Because it doesn't make a ton of sense if you think about like life with kids is inherently messy and clutter abounds. It's not empty, it's not quiet, it's not particularly calm.
2: You know, it's so wild because I don't know any minimalist that lives the way that, you know, these photographs look. And I feel like I know some of the leading sort of minimalist practitioners with huge followings and, you know, the whole nine. And I think the reason that those images are so compelling to people are the same way they were compelling to me, which is, God, I am just so overwhelmed, right? It's like this idea, if I could just get my house in order... I would have less overwhelm. If I could just get my house in order, I could be more calm. And so it becomes this ideal, you know, gosh, they must not have any stress because they don't have any clutter. And yeah. it's just not true. And it's also just an unrealistic ideal, I think, aesthetic to want to ascribe to, unless that's your thing. I mean, there are people who are just like, I grew up. You know, my parents were hoarders and I can only have like three things in my house and really three things. Like that's a different type of, you know, sort of approach and lifestyle choice that folks make based on, you know, whether they grew up with scarcity or abundance. But I think the average person sort of just, I don't know, like looking at a photo on Pinterest and saying, man, you know what? I just want to have three books. I can do it. You know, it's like, you are setting yourself up.
1: (laughs) So I guess for me, you know, one of the reasons I think mothers in particular gravitate towards these images that don't necessarily reflect anybody's lived reality is because mothers and caregivers in this country have so little control over like really big systemic things. Mm. And so I feel like, at least for me, there have been times in my life where I'm like, okay, I can't control like the lack of universal paid leave. I can't control the fact that most people can't find affordable quality childcare, but I can control like my countertops or whatever. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. And so in a way I understand and empathize with the aspirational side of the aesthetic, but how do you think aspiring toward an aesthetic versus a practice can sort of set people up to fail?
2: Oh, man, it it is absolutely a setup. (laughs) And I say that as someone who was set up, right? You know, I think what happens is, you know, again, like you're uh, expecting to somehow achieve this promise, right? So whether it is, I just have too much, you know, stuff, And I want to have nothing in this room because I want my room to look just like this room on Pinterest. They only have one chair and a desk and a lamp. And my God, this looks so peaceful, right? And then you do that and you sit in that room with that desk and that chair and that lamp and you're like, I am absolutely miserable, (laughs) right? That is the setup. This happens with planners all the time, right? Like the reason planners mothers in particular, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, by so many planners is like what they're really just looking for a way to get organized. And there's just so much stuff, right? Yep. But it's the same thing. If you don't write in the planner, if you don't use the planner, if you don't write, yep. like all the planner is going to do is possibly make you see, you know, have a visual <laughs> representation of what you're already feeling. Mm-hmm. But it's not going to make your life simpler. Right. Right. And so I think it's kind of the same thing when we ascribe to a certain aesthetic, hoping for especially some sort of like physical or emotional outcome, you know, that we can be very disappointed when it doesn't deliver what we thought the promise was.
1: (laughs) Right. Right. And it turns into sort of like a self-blame spiral. Like I just didn't do it right.
2: I think what also happens is folks try and do it and then they realize they can't. And then they feel like, oh, I failed. I can't be a minimalist, right? So I would hear from people all the time, oh, I just can't be a minimalist. I tried. Oh, I don't want to be a minimalist. It just looks too complicated. Oh, it's too much. It's too much. The minute I remove that word minimalism and say, well, can you just try to buy less things? Or (laughs) can you try to be a more conscious consumer? Can you just be more mindful of your spending? All of a sudden... People can do it, you know, or can you let go of one thing a day? Who said you had to let it all go in a weekend? Getting people to understand that we all sort of operate and are motivated by many different things Mm -hmm. and this idea that you can't do something, right? If you do want to simplify a particular space, you can do it. You just have to do it your way and on your terms in order to achieve that satisfaction, I think so many people are looking for.
1: Can you get really clear on how you define minimalism as a practice versus an aesthetic? Because I think that's like the linchpin to everything that we're talking about.
2: Yeah, I mean, for me, minimalism is truly just living with only those things that I need use and love, right? And paying it forward with those things that I don't there are so many unofficial rules around the practice because like everyone does it differently, right? And I should also say a lot of practitioners, you know, you also grow and evolve as a quote unquote minimalist. Like I'm going through that now as a new empty nester, right? Yeah. (laughs) There are just certain things that I don't need anymore. And you know, what do I do with this room? She's only here, you know, a few times a year now. And it's just like, That evolution, I think we have to allow ourselves some grace, extend ourselves some grace, and extend grace to those of us who, you know, those practitioners who we follow and allow them to also grow and evolve in their practice and in their work.
1: I think mothers in particular get stuck on, like, okay, so my kid goes to a birthday party and comes home with like a goodie bag full of like plastic, you know, crap Mm or (laughs) whatever. How do you practice? letting go of control and also, you know, like saying no to things and saying yes to the things you want in your life and saying no to the things you don't want in your life without getting, like, especially if you're like a type A person or you have type A tendencies, how do you not get into that danger zone in terms of practicing minimalism?
2: Yeah, no is a powerful word, right? I mean, what I know is you cannot bring it in the house, you know, uh-huh. like the minute you bring it in the house or you hold on to it for too long, you start to feel this sense of responsibility for it, right? It turns from the bag of like little knickknacks that, right. you know, these party favors into, oh, those are the party favors from Tommy's third birthday. And so I think it's important for us to understand our own unique psychologies of ownership. So what I mean by that is if we continue with this example of the party favors, yeah. right? I know myself and my unique psychologies of ownership. I know that if I bring it in the house, I'm going to end up holding on to it because I feel responsible for it. Yeah. Now it becomes, you know, less of a bag of party favors and more nostalgic, yeah. right? Like yeah. oh my god, he's I can't wait to show him this little dinosaur when he's 18. Like, really? He's going to be 18 in 15 years? You're about to hold on to this little dinosaur, right? But like, you have to know yourself. Yeah. So for me, the party favors don't come in the house. I also don't have a lot of like dressers and drawers Mm. and baskets and bins and things like that. Because one of the things that I discovered, again, about my own psychology of ownership is that those are storage facilities for me. They are not places of organization. They are nothing other than I can hide something in there. And so, again, I think, you know, it's so important for us to understand ourselves. And it's not really about control when we look at it from that angle. It's more of what works for me and what does not work for me, right? I know we talked about Marie Kondo earlier and you know, her folding technique is like, oh, that's like huge, right? It was right. like a big part of her work. Yeah. And people were dumbfounded when I would say like, oh, I love a Marie Kondo. And they were like, oh my God, I want to see how much you, like, let me see the drawer that you folded. And I was like, I don't have drawers. Now I don't do the whole folding thing. Right. But I love konmari my closet. And they're like, why don't you have drawers? And I said, well, when I went through my whole decluttering process, what I continued to find in drawers were things that I no longer needed, used, and loved and just had them out of sight. Yeah. So in order for me, you know, to not hoard and do those things, because I also want to talk about that, the definition of hoarding is holding on to anything for future use. I think we think of hoarding as like, oh, we're crammed in our house and we can't yeah. move because there's so much stuff. Well, the clinical definition of hoarding is holding on to something for future use. Future Whether use, it's a yeah. plastic dinosaur. Right. That you think you're going to have at Tommy's 18th graduation party, <laughs> right? <laughs> or, you know, the stuff in the drawer is like, oh, I should probably get rid of this, you know, marathon t-shirt, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, but let me just put it in here. I might wear it. You know, yes, it's like... yes. We got to, you know, so, so much of that control is really rooted in, I think, getting to know ourselves mm-hmm. more, right? And understand our own unique psychology of ownership, what motivates us to buy certain things and to have certain things. What are things that we're more prone to have an emotional attachment to? Yep. You know, all of these things play a role and a habit in our consumption patterns. Because consumption is not just what we buy. It's also what we accept and allow into our lives. How
1: does race and class figure into not only the psychology of ownership, but into an understanding of, you know, our own personal journeys to filling our homes with only what we need and what we use in a present day?
2: Yeah, you know what's so interesting is I think it's less about race and it is more about like class, generational habits, right? Like those things seem to weigh heavier, just in terms of the conversations that I've had with hundreds of folks now, right? You know, it's really about a lot of our, I would say, even like cultural standards, right? Mm -hmm. Or generationally what you witnessed, right? So for example, one of the things that I talk about in the book is extending grace to our parents. Many of us have parents who are extreme savers or extreme spenders, right? And part of that comes from the fact that many of them were born after the Great Depression. All of the stories that they heard, what they, you know, remember their families going through, were they a family that lost Everything and their parents said, You know what? We're never saving again. We're going to live for the moment. Or were their parents saying, We're going to save everything because we don't know when something like this is going to happen again? Yeah. So much of who we are is rooted in our childhood. Yeah. Right. And that is why race is less of a factor, unless you want to talk about some of the cultural sort of things. And it's really more. What were our family dynamics? Did we grow up with scarcity or abundance? Yeah. What were we told or not told Uh about spending, right? Like, even those conversations that you overheard as a child, you know, Uh where it's like, it's payday and I work hard, I'm going to get whatever I want, Uh right? Like, those sorts of things sort of imprint themselves on us, and then we end up either marrying that behavior. As an adult, some folks, you know, depending on how harmful it might have felt or uncomfortable it might have felt, they go to the extreme end on the spectrum or opposite direction. And that's why it's just so important to know ourselves, right? Also, another consideration that I like to talk to folks about is thinking of where you are in your familial standing, right? So a lot of first-gen You could be first gen anything. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like it does not even have to be first gen college grad. You could be the first person in your family to own a house. You could be the first person in your family to earn six figures. There's this weighted responsibility that comes with some of those things that crosses across all, you know, races, nationalities, ethnicities, right? It's just like this overwhelming sense of responsibility to look a certain way, to act a certain way, to own or acquire certain things, even if it's not what you really want, because that is what is expected or that is what is, you know, sort of seen that someone in your position should have. Those things, I think that is what is at the root cause of so much of our discomfort when it comes to clutter and having things. We know it's too much. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We know it's too much. That's why step one for me, it's acknowledgement. Just go on ahead and acknowledge. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you have too much. Yeah. And then like, you got to forgive yourself. Step two is forgiveness for a reason. You know what I mean? We only know what we know. And then it's like this awareness or awakening that happens when we start to dig a little deeper into our psychology of ownership and why we have so much more than we need. Yeah. Do we get to some of these answers? And they usually point to our childhood and suddenly want to place blame, right? So I'm always Mm -hmm. like, not only do you have to forgive yourself, you kind of have to forgive anyone who you feel may have been responsible, Mm -hmm. you know, for some of your habits and behaviors, knowingly or unknowingly, you still need to forgive them. And then you can start letting go. (laughs) Then go get the trash bags.
1: (laughs) I'm even thinking about, like, my mom would occasionally pick us up from school. She'd call it, like, a mental health day, and we'd go to TJ Maxx and Marshalls or whatever. And Mm. even equating, like, leisure time and, like, treat time with Mm. what is essentially just aimless consumerism. But Yeah. yeah, like that's just like one tiny example of how so many of us have so many things locked within our subconscious, you know, wrapped up in all of this.
2: It's crazy. I mean, I didn't even realize it until I, you know, started like really digging in and trying to perfect my own practice. And I remember saying like, gosh, I came across so many things with like sales tags or those little red stickers on them. Yeah. Usually there would be like multiple red stickers, you know, and I was like, oof, I love scoring a deal, Yeah, right? And then I'm like, I have not worn. I mean, my closet was full. <laughs> one of my closets, one of my many closets. But when I first started, it was full of all these things that just had red stickers on them. And I realized, oh, I'm in love with the thrill of the hunt, not necessarily the prize. Then I'm like, going a little deeper, why, why is this my sort of mode (laughs) (laughs) to find joy, right? Like, I'm going to go find a bargain. Right. And I remember going to the mall with my mother as a child. And I think when we do these sort of inner work on ourselves to sort of figure out our unique psychology, psychologies of ownership, I think it's so important to also look at the situation through our childlike eyes. That's why I said, like, what you may have seen, what you may have heard, right? Because what you interpreted as a child may have been completely different than what was going on, Mm -hmm. right? So, for example, we lived in South Florida. You know, we grew up, I'm pretty sure we were considered Poverty-stricken, I didn't know because my mother, you know, made life so joyous and full. But, you know, looking back, I'm like, oh, we were poor. But what she would do on the weekends is we would go to the mall and we would walk around and, you know, she would buy ice cream, you know, we we would get ice cream cones, you know. Yep. And I would always get mint chocolate chips. She would get rum raisin, (laughs) you know. And occasionally she would buy herself a lipstick. We would always look at the sales racks, you know, that kind of thing. Yep. In my childlike mind, we were shopping every weekend at the mall. When we went to the mall, we were spending imaginary money that in my mind, like when I look back on it, I'm like, of course we were just in the mall because AC was free. Right, South Florida. You know what I mean? It's a place where I can walk around. You see your friends. You Mm -hmm. know, maybe you'll find a little something. But my mother is one of the most mindful consumers that I have ever known. And again, was born, you know, after the Great Depression, but was young enough to remember the stories of what happened. And, you know. Yeah. So she is also one of the most extreme, like, (laughs) oh, Well, I don't want to say hoarder because she's not a hoarder. Yeah. But she is not letting something go that can still be used, right? Right, right. And so, you know, putting the totality of all those circumstances together, I realized like, oh, in my childlike mind, I associated shopping with being with my mom and the good feelings that we had and the fun time that we had and even realizing that you know, even as an adult, when I would go to the mall and go shopping, I would love to end the day with ice cream cone. And so, looking back on that and saying, like, okay, what was really happening? What was really happening is she found a wonderful way for us to enjoy our Saturdays, not sweltering, yeah, in the Florida heat, yeah, you know. Definitely. And so, I just think it's so important, you know, to sort of do that drill down and do that inner work and think through the root causes of some of our consumption habits and behaviors, because then once we know them, we can recognize them, right? Right. So I, I'm always going to be enticed by a sale. It's always going to be exciting to me, right? right? And so I'm not going to the semi-annual sale that happens every month. I'm not going to the sales rack and touching everything, right? Like big part of, you know, why we acquire some of the things that we do is touch, mm-hmm. right? This is why we are like, oh, test drive it, try it on, right? Like, yeah. I learned so much about the psychology of ownership researching for this book. I found so much information through marketing and advertising, huh? understanding how they tap into consumer psychology of ownership. It is the most powerful, like, even now, like I've done it. You know what uh-huh. I mean? it. I wrote the book about it and the whole night and I'm still just like, wow, this is fascinating and amazing. Okay, so
1: I'm really glad you brought that up because I am super fascinated with the ads and the marketing campaigns that specifically target mothers and specifically offer mothers reprieve, a sense of calm, a sense of clarity, simplicity, So, like, there's this one Instagram ad that came up recently. It was a woman wearing, like, a two-piece set that, like, kind of looked... It sort of looked like pajamas, sort of looked like loungewear, whatever. (laughs) And her tagline was, designing this set that can go from pajamas to, you know, the boardroom was the best thing I've ever done for myself as a mother of five. Mm. And, like as a consumer, I'm like, oh, (laughs) I want to do something for myself as a mother. But like spending $250 on these fancy pajama clothes, like that's not ultimately changing my experience of mothering and caregiving.
2: That's not. That's the promise, right? Like that's what I talk about when I was talking about earlier, this promise of, right? So this idea that I too will look just as fabulous. Yeah. Rolling out of bed in these pajamas. (laughs) going to the boardroom with my five. There is not an outfit alive that can help. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. If there were, we would all have them, right? But Mm -hmm. again, I mean, I think this idea of understanding, like I can't be tricked anymore, right? I'm using bunny ear quotes. I can't be tricked anymore by these things because I know my unique psychology of ownership. Like you can look at that ad and you can say, what an unfair promise uh-huh. to these mamas. You know what I mean? Like, right. my God, they really think they're going to look like that when they roll out. Of, do you know how wrinkled those pajamas? <laughs> you're not going to be able to go to the boardroom. It's just not possible. You know what and I mean? Even, and like,
1: Well, even if they did look like that, that is not making your experience of mothering any different, you know? No,
2: you're just going to look nice and feel frazzled. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> 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 you know, and so I think like, being able to pause, that's a big part of it, right? Instead of just clicking on that and being like, oh my God, these pajamas look amazing. This is oh this is what I've been waiting for, right? Mm -hmm. Pausing and saying, do I really need this pajama outfit set? Right? (laughs) How is this pajama outfit set really going to serve me? Where am I gonna wear it? What am I gonna do with it? You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like by the time you run down all those questions, You've usually lost interest, right? <laughs> right? Another sort of thing that I encourage folks to do is, you know, not have your credit card information mm-hmm. saved. Mm-hmm. The number of times, because it's just another—again, we just need these pause points. The number of times I have not purchased something simply because I had to go get up and get my credit card—countless, oh, countless. That's so so brave. Right? <laughs> 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 because even once you know your psychology of ownership, you're still gonna be tempted. That's when I'm, I'm always gonna be tempted by a sale. Uh-huh. Right? Uh-huh. I had to come up with little mantras for myself. And I would I'll say things like, Christine, it's not a deal if you don't need it. Mm-hmm. You know? So good. And then immediately I'm like, you don't need it. Yeah. You don't need it, right? Or I'll find myself going to get something. I'll say, Christine, what is the why behind the buy? Why are you buying this? Right. Right. Like, because usually it's tied to some emotional, Mm -hmm. you know, spending or something. Right. And so, you know, there are all these little pause points and mantras and things that we can do for ourselves to help us become more mindful consumers. And I think remembering, too, especially as mothers, that we are mirroring for our children. I think we tend to think that, oh, my child is, this is going to be so hard for them. It's really not. Like my child was able to embrace minimalism <laughs> far quicker than I was, <laughs> right? I mean, because they too feel the overwhelm, Yeah. right? Like it's also a lot for them when we're like, clean your room. I mean, they don't have the language yet, but I'm sure they're thinking, but you keep bringing stuff in here. How am I supposed to keep it clean? Totally. You know what I mean? Yep. I tell parents a lot to give their child a donation bag and tell them, because it's all in the approach, just tell them like, hey, you know what? Gosh, you have so much stuff. You have so much stuff in your room. You can't even keep your room clean. I don't even blame you for not having a clean room. You right. know what might be helpful? You're so lucky. You're so blessed. I bet there are so many kids right here in our community that would love to have some of these things. There are kids in our community that don't have a single toy mm-hmm. or don't have a single book. Can you go through your room right. and put some things in this bag that you'd like to give them right. and close that door? And I guarantee you within an hour. <laughs> yeah. Probably less than that, they'll be asking for another bag. And it's so hard for parents to sort of accept that, right? Mm-hmm. It was hard for me the first time I did that with my daughter. I should also say like everything that I'm recommending are things that I've like done. They're so totally it's not its like tried and true to work, right? <laughs> and I remember I did that with her and my mistake was looking in that bag. Oh, oh no. My goodness. Oh, no. I, you know, all of a sudden it wasn't her stuff. It was our stuff. I was like, but we love this Harry oh. Potter sweatshirt. <laughs> but this, this, this. Right. Come on, Nala. You're getting it re- right but yep. they don't have the same emotional attachments to some of these things yeah. that we think they have that we're projecting on them to have right yep. so much of that was me giving her everything that I couldn't have in childhood right you're going to have all the dolls you're going to have all the books you ask for anything i'm going to get it you're right? right and it's just like why I think it was her ninth birthday party was when I was really starting to sort of tap into we need to have less. Because her birthday party was coming up. Yep. I couldn't think of a single, there wasn't a single thing that child needed. Right. There wasn't a single thing that she could tell me that she wanted for her birthday. And I remember just like, just, I'm like, what can I do? What can I do? And I was like, you know what? We're going to have a carnival in the backyard. And all of her friends who also don't need anything. So <laughs> not doing all these party favors and things. Right. Everyone, the entry to the carnival is a canned good. One canned good. And we're gonna donate the canned goods, right? Yeah. yeah. So send out the invitation. And <laughs> a night before, two nights before the party, my phone starts going. Okay. And I'm getting all these messages and the parents are like, oh my gosh, our kid is raiding the pantry. Like, what is (laughs) happening? Like, I thought they were just supposed to bring a canned good. And I'm like, it is. It's just one canned good. And, you know, but Nala told her friends that they were going to be donating to the food pantry. And like, I mean, we had shopping carts <laughs> oh full gosh. of food. And I, you know, I had her go with me to our local food pantry. It's the Bowie Interfaith food pantry. And like, I just had to step aside a little bit. <laughs> I yeah. just cried, yeah. you know, I mean, The parking lot was full of, you know, luxury vehicles. And there were, you know, and it's just like at any moment, I think we forget we can find ourselves on that other side. And this idea that, man, like this food is actually, it's going to help some other family. And the kids had a blast. They signed a card for the food pantry, thanking them for the work they were doing in the community. Yep. And they had the best time at that carnival. And to this day, she said that's her favorite birthday party. she doesn't even remember some of the other birthday parties where I spent thousands of dollars. That was her favorite birthday party. And so I think it's important for parents to remember that our kids don't have the same level of emotional attachments to things that we think they do. Yep. A lot of times it is us projecting our own childhood insecurities, wants, unfulfilled needs onto our children because we feel like they are never going to have to go through what I went through. Right. Oh, gosh, I love that story so much.
1: I have one more question. So we're asking everybody because, you know, the podcast is so much about detaching from ideals of perfection, unattainable Mm -hmm. ideals of perfection. And so I wondered if you have a situation, a past experience, or something you're still working on where you're still sort of struggling to detach from reaching some sort of
2: impossible perfection? Yeah, I've kind of let that go. How? That's (laughs) That's, awesome. I have. I let it go because it's impossible, right? I mean, I think, you know, going through this process, that's what it taught me. I remember apartment therapy was like the first big you know, sort of name to reach out for me to do an interview. And they were like, Oh, we, you know, love to feature your home, but take your time whenever you're ready. And I was like, Oh no, this is as minimalist as this is gonna get. Yeah. I'm ready. Yeah. You know, and like looking back on those photos five years later and I'm just like, My God, I still had so much stuff, right? <laughs> like But in my mind, because I know, I remembered what I had, Mm -hmm. like for me to whittle down four closets and dressers and all these things into one closet. No, dresser, you know, I'm like, oh, I have arrived. I have done it, (laughs) you know, and it just wasn't the case. And I think, you know, this idea, one of the things that I leave folks with at the end of the book is to sort of let go of this idea of perfectionism, to let go of this idea even that if you embark on this journey to minimalism or living with less, that there is some destination, some prize at the end, because there isn't. Yeah. And the language that I use around that is, I am not grown, I am growing. I'm not a grown woman, I'm a growing woman. And may I always be growing, it goes back to that evolution, you know, like, may we just always be constantly growing and evolving. And with that, it just sort of sheds this, you know, unrealistic idea of anything being perfect or, you know, attainable. Like the mark is always moving as it should be. Yeah. You know, so I hope that answers that question.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I feel like you're just like blowing my mind in terms of perfect is the antithesis of aliveness
2: in a way. hmm Yeah. It's just not like... It's just not possible. And all we do is stress ourselves out. Yep. You know what I mean? Like, it's a conversation I have with young mothers all the time. Like, there are so many things that I would have done differently and not been so rigid mm-hmm. about. Like, they just don't matter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Ugh. Like, I'm just thinking of a time when I was like wrestling, literally wrestling with my toddler because she didn't want to change out of her pajamas. Right. And go to daycare, right? Yeah. And I finally, like, wrangle her out. And, like, it was just this, oh, I was so exhausted. Yeah. It was just this whole thing. And I get out of daycare, and I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry we're late. She just wanted to wear pajamas and blah, blah, blah. And her teacher was like, oh, why didn't you just let her wear pajamas? And I was like, because this is how it starts. Yes? This is how she won't listen to me. And she's just looking at me like, not really Let but okay you know yes <laughs> you know like and so yeah just like little things like that that we just you know the control the perfectionism this idea of somehow achieving this promise that is really you know it's just a social construct really it's just another social construct yeah, another. i think especially for mothers you know what yes. i mean it's like there is no perfect mother 100% It's just is not possible Thank you so
1: much, Christine. This was a delight. Can you tell us where to find you online
2: and what you're working on now that people can sort of look forward to? Sure. You can find me online, mostly on Instagram at Platt is my handle. You can find me on the internet, com, And I am working on a new kid series called Frankie and Friends. And Frankie is this cute little reporter who reports on news in her neighborhood. She, like, wants to be a journalist like her mama. And it's really just this opportunity to talk to children about the importance of journalism and media and, you know, asking an open-ended question versus asking a closed-ended question. You know, what's a beat? You know, like, it's a lot of fun. And so, you know, she reports on kids' news big and small. So, She reports on everything from, you know, having a loose tooth to is the washer or the dryer eating the socks. She reports on a big protest, you know. And so, yeah, it's nice to sort of have all of those like sort of intersections of things that mean the most to me with my writing, teaching, learning, you know, encouraging these courageous conversations to be able to pour that into this new series. So really excited about that.
1: Yay. I can't wait. Thank you so much, Christine. So what do you have for your perfect for us this week, Virginia?
0: Okay, so I want to talk about this gallery while I'm making in my bedroom because I'm so excited about it. I was kind of hoping you would. Yeah. Sarah was getting texts the other week where I was like doing a video tour of the room being like, this is going here and this is going anywhere. (laughs) Very fun. Then I thought I bought nightstands and then didn't buy nightstands. It's a whole thing. So the room is a work in progress. My bedroom has just like a giant, it's had empty white walls for years, which is what it was. Never really got around to thinking, which I think happens a lot. Like you work on the rest of your house and yes. your bedroom's just like whatever, yep. hot mess, <laughs> or just like empty. Mm-hmm. But I've been really leaning into it, was very much like a white box of a room. Yeah. And our bedding was originally like gray and very neutral. And so I've bought like this beautiful. It is linen, but I'm not going to line dry it. It's- periwinkle <laughs> duvet cover and like bright colored throw pillows. And now I'm working on this gallery wall that's going to be like lots of very like bright, colorful art.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: And I do feel like I'm breaking kind of a lot of design rules. Like I feel like you're supposed to make your bedroom like very serene, mm-hmm. simple. And I don't know. That's just like not where I am right now. I want a lot of color and joy. So. I can put some links to a couple of Etsy prints I found that were really inexpensive. It's like lots of like flowers, like bright colored flowers. So those are going up. I'm also printing. Framebridge is so helpful for this. That's where I'm getting a lot of this done. So I'm just ordered a bunch of like photos of me and the girls. Some of their baby pictures that, that the six and ten I'm finally getting around yeah.
2: to printing. yeah, 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 That's,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then some more recent stuff. And I also put up some pictures of my garden. Because I was like, what brings me the most joy? It's my garden. And now we're in the dead of winter. And a winter garden is beautiful. But, like, I want to see my flowers. So I'm putting up some flower pictures. Uh And I'm very excited. I mean, obviously, it's great to be thoughtful about our purchasing and all of the things we talked about. But if you are feeling, like, a lack in your life, maybe it is a need for color.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. What about you, Sarah? Okay. Mine is a pillow. I think, I mean, we've discussed, I know, off-air that I'm a very high-maintenance sleeper. I mean, I'm high-maintenance in many, many aspects. (laughs) I'm a very high-maintenance sleeper. Like, ever since I got pregnant, well, and had the first kid, I'm, like, the lightest sleeper in the world. It's Mm -hmm. absolute hell. Mm -hmm. So, like, Brett makes the slightest noise. I'm, like, whacking him. It's bad. So, I have earplugs. I have white noise machines. The room needs to be, like, polar ice cap temperatures, and I need, like, eight million blankets.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: But the pillow is by far the most important piece. So much so that I always, 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 no matter where I'm going, always bring it with me.
0: Like Wow, like even on an airplane situation. Oh,
1: I mean, 100%. Not to, like, have on the airplane to nap but you're going to figure out a way to pack it,
0: even if it requires checking
1: a bag. 100%. Yeah. Like, I'll bring, like, one outfit if I can bring my pillow. (laughs) It's absolutely, it's not even, like, negotiable. Like, I don't go to, like, five-star resorts, but if I were to, I would still bring my pillow.
0: You would be like, I don't trust their pillows. Correct. I'm going to need my own. Yes. And so... so what is so amazing about it? It's the basic
1: purple pillow. Purple is the brand. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And it's, like, latex, and it's almost like, you know, honeycomb cereal? Do you remember Mm -hmm. honeycomb? It's, like, that... It's not like it feels bumpy when you're, like, using it. But it's this delicious, like, springy, yet solid, yet supportive give that is truly, truly delicious. And, like, you know how most pillows get, like, the lumps and the Mm -hmm. uneven distribution of whatever? Mm -hmm. This does not. And you can tightly kind of wedge it into a suitcase Whatever it is, it's really it's working. Green. And I've had it for several years. It's pricey. But again, you're sleeping on this thing every freaking night.
0: And sleep is important. I wonder if it would help my neck stuff.
1: Oh, I'm sure it would. It's currently <laughs> $159, which, yes, very expensive for a pillow. But think of how many hours you're spending with this thing.
0: Also, you're a minimalist. You're only buying one pillow in your whole <laughs> life, Sarah. Exactly. So this is fine. It's the last pillow you'll ever need. It's the last pillow you'll ever buy. You're going to die on this pillow. Yes. So is your deathbed pillow. <laughs> it's
1: the Purple Harmony pillow for all your deathbed needs.
0: I mean, you're like half selling me on it. I'm already like... <laughs> only half? I, I mean, only because I feel like I just spent a lot of money on art for sure. my gallery wall. sure. Otherwise, it'd be all the way there. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> do I also need to replace the pillows? Okay, my important question yes. is, how firm is it? Because we did spend some money on some, I can't remember what brand they were, some pillows that had a lot of claims attached to them Mm -hmm. and when they arrived they were so like there's no give whatsoever oh no 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 this has
1: like really delicious springy is the word I keep like nice like it's not like a bed of moss but like you know when you think of moss you think of like a nice give yep yep that is what I think of when I think of this pillow okay
0: yeah, that sounds really delicious. Yeah. These ones you could adjust how stiff they were, or how firm they were by taking out some of the stuffing. Oh. But then I was like, what do I do with this bag of extra pillow stuffing?
1: That sounds kind of like a lot of work.
0: Use it to bury my American girl dolls, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> or at least they could
1: have a pillow in their in their tomb. In their
0: garbage bag yeah, in the basement. Yeah. It's fine. This conversation never happened. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for listening to Cult of Perfect. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe for free on your podcast player. And please leave us a rating or review. Those will really help folks find the show.
1: You can get more of my work at sarahpeterson.substack.com or follow me on Instagram at Peterson.
0: And all things Burnt Toast are at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com or follow me on Instagram at v underscore soulsmith. The Cult of Perfect podcast is produced and hosted by us. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Cell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Cult of Perfect logo is by Deanna Lowe, and Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening. I'm a good